Smiley. And I'm John Morton. And this is the Rooted and Grounded Podcast. Rooted and Grounded creates theological content to grow the church and our knowledge of God in order that we would grow in our love for Him and for our neighbor. Check out more at rootedandgrounded.co. Hey, Tyler, pretty exciting news in the Rooted and Grounded world. I can't wait to hear. Uh, we now have pages on some social media outlets that you might be familiar with. That's right. There's a Facebook page. Okay. There's an Instagram profile. What do you what do you call it on Instagram? I don't know. You're asking me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like I know. Just should have said it with more confidence. Uh, I only call it the FB. Ooh. Or Insta. Insta. Mm. Yeah, because that's what all the cool kids call. We don't Instagram. call it. We don't call it IG anymore. You may be right, but I'm gonna go with Insta. What about the gram? That well, that's also a unit of measurement, so it could get confusing. Yeah, a lot of Americans uh, use a lot of grams, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they should go to Facebook.com. Oh, well, this is. They should go to RootedAndGrounded.co. Oh, okay. RootedAndGrounded.co and their little uh, little picture icons they can click on that take them to the pages. There you go. So go to RootedAndGrounded.co. Click on the icon either on Facebook or Instagram. Depending on your preference. Or both. Or both. And like those pages. Yeah, like, follow, do whatever you need to do. And now you won't miss a the release of a podcast or an article because it'll right. be right there in your in feed. Your f- Feed. I think that's what they in call it. In your social media inbox. Yeah. Tyler and I are a little behind the times. Uh, our favorite technology is the Codex. Uh, we're really happy that we figured out how to bind books and that we can we can use books. We think that's great technology. Uh, we're going to see if it lasts, though. You think hey, the book's going to last? Uh, forever. Okay. I just got my sons a new gaming console. Have you heard of this? It's called the Atari. <laughs> It's really fun. It's going to rot their minds. <laughs> is it cutting into their Hebrew lesson is my concern. Still got the alphabet and working on words. That's good. They've almost caught up to my knowledge. <laughs> Speaking of Hebrew, Old Testament was written in Hebrew. This is true. And the book of the Old Testament that we're talking about today is... Joshua. There yeah, it is. ostensibly this podcast is about the Bible. And this is following along with our Eden Exile, a one-year journey through the Old Testament and its connection with Jesus in the New Testament that is uh, being followed by Lakewood Baptist Church. And we are in week 27 for this podcast, which is Joshua chapters 5 through 9, with the New, Te- New Testament connection versus Hebrews 11.10. And you get... Two this week, more bang for your buck, and Revelation 21, 1 through 27. So we started last week with the first four chapters of Joshua. We ended Deuteronomy. We found that Moses had died. Joshua now took command of the people. And if you missed last week's podcast, go to rootedandgrounded.co and find it there or to Apple Podcasts and find it there and maybe in the future even on Spotify or other platforms, and find it there also. We have friends who know about technology. Yeah, it's good. That's right. And you can find all about the first four chapters of Joshua last week. But this week, we're in chapters five through nine. Five through nine. And they are now going to uh, find themselves entering into their first 
battle to get into the land. First battle, getting ready to getting ready to go. Covenants renewed. Memorial stones are put in place, and uh, now they're getting ready. But first, they have to uh, participate in this covenant ceremony that traces itself all the way back to Abraham, which is the ceremony of circumcision. Well, and I think what you see as we go through the battles, so really six through six, seven, and eight, we see the the battles, and then we get sort of summary battles, summaries of the battles later. But the emphasis is really on God doing the fighting for Israel. And so in chapter five, we get the preparation for that, but it's not your typical military preparation. It's really a spiritual preparation for them to go into the land and to fight and to do battle, but really as a spiritual, as a as an act of faith, as trusting the Lord. So the preparation is spiritual preparation. So it is this ceremony, this covenant ceremony that God instituted with Abraham. That's right. And uh, from the time they left Egypt, we learn that no one had participated. They hadn't kept this going from that time forward. So you've got an entire generation that is not circumcised at this point. That's right. And so you said you talked about this being from the time of Abraham. So this is Genesis 17, where this is instituted. Is it important for us to remember what promises God connects with this ceremony, with this covenant? Yes. What, what is he promising there? To Abraham. To Abraham in Genesis 17. Well, if you flip back to Genesis 17, I think you can read it and find out for yourself. That was a segue for you to do that. I will do that, and I'm flipping right now. You can hear the pages rustling. And it was when Abraham was 99 years old. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. So, uh, Abraham fell on his face, and God said, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but Abraham, for I have made you the father of a, mul- of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give you and your offspring uh, after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. I will be there, and I will be their God. I mean, so there's really two elements there, right? That there would be a nation. He'd be the father of many nations. He'd be the father of a great people. Mm -hmm. Well, we've seen that come true. In Exodus, right. Leviticus, Numbers, That's right. Deuteronomy, now Joshua, here are the people, and they're on the verge to get what the Lord says in verse 8. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan. Well, that's where they are. They're about to enter into the land. and So it seems, doesn't seem coincidental. It's, it's fitting at this point. That they are calling to mind these promises. This ceremony calls to mind the promises made to Abraham right here, that he would be the father of, of a great people and that they would possess the land of Canaan. And so if you jump down to verse 11 in that chapter, you see that the sign of this is to be circumcised in the flesh, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And he who is 
Eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not foreigner who is not of your offspring, uh, both he who is born of the house and he who is brought in with money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. So it's intended to be a marker passed down generationally to every male. And as they come out of Egypt, those who had been living in Egypt had continued to participate in that. Mm-hmm. But after that point had not. So they had stopped, which I think it's um, – so, yeah, you're seeing the covenant made to Abraham coming true and a reminder to them that this is what God has promised all along, and now you are getting what he has said uh, he would give to you. That's right. And that's, I mean, that's really, Joshua is the culmination of the first five books of these promises to Abraham that Abraham will be the father of a great people, that his offspring will possess that land. But then there's in chapter 12, when the promise is first made in Genesis 12, that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through them. And so the the question, I think, in Joshua becomes, will the people of God be a blessing to the world? And in some ways, we saw with the story of Rahab, which Mm -hmm. we'll hit again in chapter 6, is that, yes, they're being a blessing to the world, uh, but in many ways, they'll fail. We'll see, not as much in Joshua, but when we get to Judges, they'll fail to be faithful to the covenant, and by their failure, they won't bless the world. Mm. They'll fail to be a blessing to the world. That's right. So this is all connected, right? It's, that's right. It is this continuing narrative, this continuing story about how God is working mm-hmm. to redeem his people, redeem the people for his own possession, and to fulfill these promises to Abraham. At the end of that, uh, at the end of that narrative in the f- beginning of chapter 5, it says that when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. I have rolled away the reproach mm. of Egypt. Uh, he is, uh, has rescued them, saved them, yet another time where God reminds his people... I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Which is what the very next section there in chapter 5 in Joshua is about, right? Remember, celebrating the first Passover in Canaan. That's right. That Passover, remember that God redeemed you from slavery in Egypt. The manna stops. Yes. And now they're eating off the fruit that they're finding in the land, which is an amazing gift that uh, God has provided for them all along the journey, and now they're... uh, being provided by the land that they're mm-hmm. about to take, which is an amazing. It's a it's a first fruits. I mean, literally, but it's the first fruits of of seeing God's promises come true. That's right. So, finishing out verse five, who is this commander of the Lord's army? All right. See, if I ask the question, then you'll then I answer, have to answer. Yeah, that's right. You have to ask it quickly. So, at the end of chapter five, there is this mysterious uh, figure who suddenly appears on the scene. Uh, seemingly out of nowhere, who identifies himself uh, when Joshua asks, uh, are you for us or are you against us? And he said, 
Uh, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. <laughs> now I have come. And Joshua's response, I think, tells us what's happening. That he falls on his face uh, and uh, worships and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet. The place you're standing is holy. That sounds familiar. I feel like I've heard that somewhere. Uh, seems a little bit like Exodus 3. There it is. Where the Lord appears to Moses in the burning bush. Mm-hmm. I take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Almost verbatim. Maybe exactly verbatim. Right. Yep. This is seems to be an encounter with God himself. So there are times throughout the Old Testament where there's an encounter of a human being with a mysterious figure like this. I mean, it's so this has happened repeatedly throughout the story so far. And so it kind of creates this question, well, you know, every time, who is this? Is this uh, an, an angel that a messenger that the Lord has sent? Is this a uh, some form or vision of God himself mm-hmm. making himself known uh, in physical appearance to that person? And uh, I think this one seems to be indicating, at, you know, the latter, that this is Joshua is encountering the living God. That's right. He worships him and takes off his sandals for the place where he's standing on holy ground. The parallels with the call of Moses are clear. Yeah. Right. I mean, this is this is Moses's successor experiencing very similar things. What that's Moses right. has done. That's right. Moses experienced. So that's how I would understand it. That's how I take it. And uh, it's such a short little insert into the uh, into the text there. Now, what does it do for the whole story? For this narrative, this spiritual preparation going into the Battle of Jericho. Right. So. Uh, you see everything that's leading up to this too. I mean, that the covenant's renewed through through their words and vows and promises. That the covenant is renewed through circumcision, as God had uh, talked to Abraham. They have the Passover together, and so all of these are reminding them of what God has done. And now we're even seeing God is still with His people. Uh, they would have depended on Moses for so long to remind them that God is with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen Him. I mean, Moses would enter into the presence of God. But God is still with them. Moses is dead. Joshua's the servant. But God is still with us. We see that through the Ark of the Covenant, but now in this experience. And for them to take this land, it will require nothing short of God working. I mean, it will take that. That's right. And I think that's the big thing. God is with them. Yeah. Um, That's... I mean, the whole book has been at pains to show that God is with them. The very first speech from the Lord is, be strong and courageous, for I'm with you. The Ark right. of the, I mean, to your point, the Ark of the Covenant crossing the Jordan. That's right. It is God present with them that's allowing this to happen. Yeah. I think just more assurance. Yeah. God is with you. And it's only through his presence, through his power, that you will be successful. So speaking of things that seem uh, odd and out of the ordinary when it comes to preparing for battle, how about the way that they actually fight in Jericho? It doesn't seem like trumpets and horns are usually the key weapon of choice in battle? Am I just forgetting my military history? 
Well, to be fair, the only military history class, I took two sort of military history classes. Yeah. Uh, one was war and Shakespeare, oh. and the other was the influence of sea power upon history. So uh, we didn't really do a lot with land tactics, I'm going to be honest. So, but I think this is out of the ordinary. Those were two of the most interesting sentences I've ever heard you say. And I'm pretty sure a lot of people might have been bored by them. But I was personally fascinated. I mean, I don't want to hear more now, but later. <laughs> off air. Off, off air. air. We should talk more about that. Uh, do, maybe that could be a spinoff podcast. Probably not. tactics. Probably, probably not. not. Probably not from us. At least. You know, right now I'm listening to an audiobook uh, in my five minute commute to and from work. So it's taking me a long time <laughs> to make it through. But I'm listening to Lord of the Rings. Ooh. And there are horns in this, particularly as we've just found uh, the horn of Gondor. So there you go. Horns and air, wind, air instruments are a part of battle. But uniquely at Jericho. <laughs> oh, wait, yeah, that's what we're talking that's about. That's right, that's right. Oh. They not only, um, you know, uh, just instill the soldier with vigor and strength, but they are the battle weapon. That's right. That there's marching and music. That's how they're defeated. Yeah. And it's because this is the Lord's plan. This is what he lays out for them to do is to march around the city. Uh, and then on the seventh day to march seven times and to blow the trumpets and shout. I have a hard, I have a hard time ever like talking about this as if like, we're going to learn something new every time we read about the battle at Jericho. But because I mean, what do you say? Like after you've said it, they shouted and they won and the walls, the fortified walls of the city came crumbling down and they won i mean i don't what else is there to say about this and I th that's the point that the lord fought the battle for them it is a miraculous victory and not one they accomplished in their own strength yeah um you know what's as we get into talking about the uh the people of god taking over this land we're gonna continue to see them facing opponents mm -hmm. and uh i think folks, uh, I know myself and others will start to ask, well, why is all of this necessary that they would have to fight and conquer these people in, in sort of violent ways to get the land back? Like why, why is, who, who is this God that's doing this? Is this even right? Is that, you know, so, I mean, all these questions start to surface up and I think it would be helpful for us to just talk about this, how we understand it, how we read it. But one key place to start, I think, is to remember from last week's reading that we found out from Rahab's report in Jericho that the person and work of Yahweh, this God, was not unknown to the people of Jericho. They had heard about the mm. ways that he had worked. They knew of this God, according to, to Rahab's report. She was very familiar with it. Uh, it's not as if this was an unknown God coming in to uh, wipe out a people for uh, no apparent reason. They seem to have known what he had been doing in rescuing his people out of slavery in Egypt and the stories that had come along with that, the crossing of the Red Sea and uh, their 
their survival through the desert, which must have just seemed miraculous uh, in and of itself. But now they're coming into Jericho, and amidst that report of them knowing who this God is, they don't choose to repent or ask for the favor of this God or come to Joshua and the leaders and say, we believe that your God is the true God because we've seen him work. I mean, instead, they seem to fortify their city and get ready to fight. Reject. They're clearly rejecting the Lord. Okay. And I think it was pointed out to us, right, even part of this seven-day battle plan is giving them time to repent. And if we zoom out even farther, I mean, their sin goes back to the time of Abraham. So when in Genesis 15, another place the Lord promises this land to Abraham, he says that they're going to have to wait. Your people, your offspring are going to have to wait because he says, for the iniquity of the Amorites, which is another way to describe the Canaanites, is not yet complete. Mm -hmm. Basically, God is saying, is giving them centuries to turn. This would be very similar to something like Nineveh. Right. Where they're wicked, judgment is pronounced, and yet, like with Rahab, there's an opportunity to turn to the Lord, and they don't do it. And right. you see you see how evil they are really in some of the legislation like in Leviticus 18 where he starts to say don't do this because that's what the Canaanites do. So right. things like sacrificing children. Right? Just they're they're pagan, they're idolatrous, but just comes out in particularly evil ways with a complete lack of sexual sexual morality the killing of children, mm-hmm. an unjust society in general. And so all these manifestations of that, and the Lord is he's given them an opportunity, mm-hmm. given them a chance. Mm-hmm. So not that there is such a thing as an innocent sufferer, right. right? As given our understanding of sin, but in this case it's particularly clear that their their sin is fairly heinous. Yeah. Right. And um, I mean this is so Deuteronomy nine. This is what God says to to the Israelites. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them, the Canaanites, out before you. It's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And it, <laughs> I mean, so in verse 6 in Deuteronomy 9, God says again, you're not getting this land because you're righteous, for you are a stubborn people. That's right. And it's really what we see That's right. when we get to chapter 7. It, okay. So right after Jericho, and yes. this miraculous victory. Yes. It, and it's like, these, this is going to be a piece of cake. I mean, if all it takes is seven days and a little marching, a little music, boom. Sign us up, you know, we're in. Uh, and then they turn around, and the next thing you know, it doesn't go so well for them. That's right, which is an important thing to remember, that this is not, these battles are not just the Lord, sort of his ethnocentrism, that he only favors this particular country. Mm-hmm. It's actually, he he demands all holiness from all people. And so when the Israelites disobey, these very same punishments 
will come to them. And eventually they'll be driven out of the land in exile because of their disobedience. Which, again, is not surprising. I mean, Leviticus 18 and the passages you were reading, they all are saying, when you get to the land, don't do these things because it will vomit, the land will vomit you out. The land will vomit you out. And so you're seeing this uh, shown as this is who God is. This is what he... Uh, this is what it means to be in a relationship with him is to be this kind of people. And um, you see that in chapter 7 of Joshua, right after they have this incredible victory at Jericho, miraculous, unexplainable by any other means other than God did this, that um, they're turned away. And they don't seem to know why. Joshua falls on his face. He's calling out to the Lord. Uh, they flee from the people of Ai. And uh, it's in, chapter, in verse 10 of chapter 7, the Lord said to Joshua, get up. <laughs> get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel have sinned. They've transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They've taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen the... They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted uh, for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up. Yeah, so they, if they don't obey, they will become like the Canaanites. They will be devoted to destruction, just like the Canaanites were. That's right. I think this is fascinating in verse 11 there. So Joshua 7, 11. Yep. Because what's going to, we're going to find out is there's, it's one person, mm-hmm. Achan, who has sinned. That's right. right. He, the one person has stolen, has taken these devoted things and not destroyed them or not consecrated them to the Lord. But listen to how the Lord describes it. Israel has sinned. Mm-hmm. They have transgressed my covenant. They have taken the devoted things. They have stolen and lied. This is fascinating that where it's so foreign to our concept of justice and how we work, but because one person sinned, the whole community has sinned. That's right. And that's really how the Bible looks at sin, is that it is not an individual affair. It's like your sin affects me, my sin affects you, yep. that there's this communal nature to it and that we are, we're, we're guilty. And that's in such opposition to what we're going to find today. I mean, just thinking about our own context, you're pretty much, uh, you're pretty much told that your, your decisions affect you and you alone because you can do whatever you want to do. And you, you know, what I do, it just matters to me. It doesn't matter to you. I don't care about you. I just care about me. Mm-hmm. And you never get the sense that, okay, yeah, no, my decisions actually do have real effectual consequences on other people. Uh, and uh, it's not only is that sad, frustrating, uh, difficult to deal with when you just talk about human human to human interaction that, okay, you can sort of become convinced that, sure, what I do will have an effect on you, especially if I'm stealing from you or, mm-hmm. you know, something like this. Okay. But that even in our relationship with God, as the people of God, I mean, okay, so we're each individuals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We are, um, you know, priests as, a, as if a kingdom of priests. And yet we're a people, a, a one people. 
and how we live together impacts our relationship, even individually, but as a whole people before God. Right. And that's where, you know, the metaphor, the image of the church as the body of Christ is so helpful is that we are, we're an interrelated organism. And so what we do affects everyone else. But I think this communal nature is also, it's good news, yep. right? Because it's because of the righteousness of Christ that his one person's righteous deeds that all those who trust in him can be counted as righteous. So there is, uh, there's communal guilt, but there's also communal hope that in Christ, if we're found in Christ, if we're united to him, then we are redeemed and counted as righteous because of his good work. Yep. So, uh, they find out, uh, Achan that he had hidden all the things that was in his tent and they discover it. And, um, after, after this, as they go back to the Lord in repentance, the Lord said to Joshua at the beginning of chapter 8, Don't fear, don't be dismayed, take all the fighting men with you and rise and go to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. So uh, they, the Lord has not forsaken them. He's still with them and he will give them the land, even amidst their unfaithfulness already. Already, one stop, a miraculous uh, victory, and but still, he's with them. One is this trajectory of the Old Testament that the people in the land are not going to follow God's law because what they need is not just a land. They don't just need to be where they are. They don't just need to be a people, but they actually need new hearts because they suffer the same problem that we have, and that is sin. And that is that we are by nature objects of wrath. We are sinners by nature, and we need new hearts. And so, by the time you get to the old, te- the end of the Old Testament, that's what's being prophesied: is that one day, God is going to act and give us new hearts. That's right. Give His people new hearts so that they can follow His law. That's right. They want to follow His law and they want to love Him. All right, we only got a couple minutes left, but we got to get to chapter nine. If not only because we we get to say things like. This is a chapter about the Gibeonite deception, mm, mm. which if that doesn't pique your interest, I don't know what will. I think we lost a lot of people with the influence of sea power upon history. Oh. <laughs> but uh, I mean, if they're still hanging around, I think the Gibeonite deception will do it If for they're them. still hanging after that, they're going to love this. The Gibeonite deception. Another war tactic. The Gibeonites come pretending to be from far away, from far away, even though they're very near. They t- pretend to be from far away with tattered out clothing that they've made to look tattered out. It's kind of like it's kind of like uh, maybe the first encounter with hipsters in the Old Testament where they're making old new things look old intentionally mm. for mm. a purpose. This is a good point. I mean, if you're a real hipster, you should be eating moldy bread. <laughs> So they got moldy, crumbly bread. They've got uh, tattered clothing. And I was it, eating moldy bread before it was cool. <laughs> it was. Is it cool now? If it's cool now, we there's bigger problems than I thought we had. Mm. Mm. So they pretend to be from far away and on this long journey and saying, you know, we're from we're we're not from one of these places. So don't worry about us. We're from like way far away. You don't even know where we we're from, and um, and they trick them into making this covenant. Joshua and the Israelites making this covenant. Right, them. right. Not to harm them. 
How about this? Okay. Verse 9, chapter 9, verse 9. They said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. Right. And they go on and on. Uh, so it just goes to the point that we talked about earlier. The fame of the Lord is spreading. I mean, Rahab knew. People at Jericho surely would have known like Rahab. And even the Gibeonites know about it. Um, just it's interesting how people respond to the truth of who God is and what he does. Yeah. Right. Rahab responds in faith. The Jericho and the rest of the Canaanites respond in hardness of heart that we'll just fight. We'll show this God That's right. who's boss. Uh, the Gibeonites decide deception is the way to go. They're going to manipulate it. Manipulate uh, wow. this people. There. So uh, there's some. There's a sermon series there for you right it's there. has got to be something there. Yeah. Well, they get them, They the Gibeonites, who are pretending to be from far away, get the uh, Joshua, the elders of Israel, to covenant with them um, and so that they wouldn't be harmed and uh, that to make peace with them, make a covenant with them to let them live. And the elders of the congregation swore this to them. Now, at the end of three days after they made the covenant, they heard that they, so the Israelites heard, found out that these people were not from a far off land, but that they were neighbors. Mm. And that they lived among them. And so the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Um, and now their cities were Gibeon. And then it lists all the rest of them that I'm not going to say on the airwaves. And so they're sort of struck with this dilemma here. I mean, just to cut to the chase, they're sort of struck with this dilemma. We made a covenant to let them live, to not harm them. We made this covenant before the Lord. And now we're realizing that they're not who they said they were. Mm-hmm. So, Israelites, do we honor this covenant or do we not? Has it been made null and void? One of the fascinating thing is that the way Joshua tells the, uh, the way the book tells this story, the fault really lies with the Israelites, right? Verse fourteen, but they did not ask counsel from the Lord. I mean, it's this condemnation that they refused to seek the Lord. They thought in their own self-sufficiency and their own wisdom they could make this decision. And so when it comes to that question of do we honor this, we'll say, yes, we honor it because we failed. Exactly. Right. It's not that the Gibeonites, I mean, certainly, right, they deceived, they acted deceptively, all those things. But, I mean, really this passage puts the blame squarely on the shoulders of the leaders of the Israelites that, and Joshua that they did not inquire of the Lord. Again, things go well, they win at AI, their covenant's renewed, they seem to be happy, and then they just suddenly forget to seek the Lord's wisdom. They suddenly forget to ask God what we ought to do next, and they just think they can do it on their own. And that's that's far too true for our lives. Yeah. Probably when things go well, we forget the Lord, and we don't pray, we don't seek Him. Uh, but then when tough times come, suddenly we pray a whole lot more. So uh, after sort of, uh, I don't know, investigating them, getting to the bottom of this whole thing with Joshua, um, he says, why did you say this? But therefore you're cursed and some of you shall never 
be anything but servants, cutters of wood, drawers of water in the house of my God. And they answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you. And we did this thing. So again, in detail, they knew what was coming. Right. Who this God was, what he'd done, and what was coming. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight, do it. And so he did this, Joshua. He did this to them, delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. So they recognized the blame was on them. They didn't seek the Lord. They did not ask him. They made a covenant promise before the Lord, and uh, they let these people live. Now, so fascinating thing about the Gibeon, Gibeonites, Gibeons, uh, they come up again Yeah, in Nehemiah, right? So after the exile, here are these sons of Gibeon, those Gibeonites back in Jerusalem, working with Nehemiah, working with Ezra to rebuild the city and the temple and the wall. So even, even though they come at it deceptively, even though it's a failure on the part of Israel to inquire of the Lord... Some of them are come seem to have genuine their descendants genuine faith in the Lord, trust in him and are part of his people generations later. Enemies of the Lord can become friends of God. It's good news. That is good news. Amen to that. Well, that's all the time we have for today, so you're gonna have to come back next week to hear more about Joshua and as we continue our OT nineteen Eden to Exile reading and podcast commentary there it is thanks so much john thanks Alex.